question is that in me which is always seeking an object of lust a very old habit of mine an object, it's, the object itself is arbitrary whoever is present and alive will do also I never act on it but somehow this obsessive state of lust feels necessary alas it's accompanied on retreat saturated my mind causing inner turmoil Contemplating the parts of the body doesn't seem to help, either because I refuse to see the body in that way, or because the object is just the catalyst for the mind state it inspires. I've wasted so much time caught in this distracted state. How do you suggest working with it? Well, I don't think you've necessarily wasted time because the state is pretty primal so it takes can take quite a bit of work working on because you say there is that in me seeks an object of lust and the object is just the catalyst for the mind state it inspires so because this is what bodies do, really. They, they have sexual energy. That's how we all got here. And um, so this is, uh, depending on one's age and so on, and this energy ar- arises. Is, is there as a potential and it gets a, can get aroused it's generally aroused quite much quicker than it's dispelled so it can be aroused in seconds and take hours to settle and so that's got that so when it arises then the mind emotion picks it up a sense of excitement occurs and then with excitement is the mind excitement quality whatever we get excited it seems to throw the energy out searching for an object to you know to transfer that excitement to we do this with everything so if we get angry we feel this kind of turbulent energy and the mind gets excited then it finds the object. If you feel frightened, mind gets excited. You can't say pleasantly excited, but gets highly stimulated, seeks an object to transfer that to this process of transference. Right? Because the emotive state is difficult to, to contain and in a way for it to be uh, completed it has to find an object to keep it going. So we get this feedback loop, you know. So we take something like lust, but you could also have something like fear. If you like, so you completely change the, the temperature, but it's a, it's a similar process. When one feels that in the body, the body also feels fear. Then this mind gets stimulated, and then, you know, it, it transfers that out. And if it tra- locks onto something, then there it proves it, and we get the feedback loop of being able to perpetuate that. Without that object in the present, it conceives an object in the past or an object in the future to transfer that to. So it will always create an object. You know, you know, anyone, you say anyone alive will do. I mean, well, that's, um, yeah. Of course, not following it is a good idea. But that's a big present alive. Um, so, you know, and then, but really that can happen with any any of these powerful surging irrational energies, anger, and uh, lust, sexual desire, transference. So. You know, you can first of all 
see, consider the nature of the object. The, the object then becomes saturated with particular radiant quality. And also, in a different, there's a different kind of saturation occurs with anger where the person or the being that's been angry also takes on a sort of, you know, a heightened characteristic. It's a different kind of radiance, maybe the wrong word, but there's a huge um, highlighting that occurs, the transference process. So we're starting to place, you know, in the case of lust, the actual body, physicality of the body, compared with the glow that is placed upon the body, either one's own or the or the, another one. So you just keep doing that, and you can do this um, reflection on the on nature of the body. You see, you see essentially. Um, a form what we really see is skin and hair and maybe tooth or two toenail (laughs) that sums it up so as I can yeah that's it really that's 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 really all we can see Uh, well and then, so the, what you can do, or, you know, hair, teeth, skin, nails, is, is actually take that particular part and just separate it from the rest. And so you take the skin, it's skin, skin. Now it's never skin, it's skin plus shape plus all kinds of other qualities that one gets get kind of inferred in that. So you take skin as skin, it's just that, isn't it? You take hair can be attractive, but it's generally not hair so much as hair shaped or coloured. So if we just see hair, hair is the hair, you know, one hair, it's difficult to get much going on one hair. <laughs> If it's in your soup, you might get a little bit stirred, but <laughs> some with one hair on the head is not going to really get you going. If it does, you've really got issues. <laughs> so you're going to take these pieces and just place them there, and just keep getting the mind. It's not you're not making a value judgment. That's disgusting, nasty. Just it's this. It actually is this. And the mind will kind of keep blurring, but it is this. It's actually this quality. It doesn't necessarily deal with the energy one's experiencing immediately, but it does begin to cut the transference. So what we, what we feel lustful about is a kind of formulation of, say, you know, um, that you either see a detail or the whole part, and it, what, it, what it represents, what it means. It's, it's sort of shape, colour, inferred textures, um, movement, things like that. It's qualities that are not innate to the actual physicality of the body, but sort of behaviours of the body we might find more stimulating. And behaviour is very changeable, isn't it? So that's it. So anyway, the point of the, the um, parts of the body thing is just see them as they are, and you recognise what you see with your eye, particularly. Well, you know, if you talk about five millimetres off that body, it would be pretty difficult to even look at it. Actually, just the raw flesh. So these are things one can do, and we only do them not because we dislike people, but just because we are suffering from a particular thing that's, that's we find ourselves afflicted by. So then you take, you're prepared to take some bitter medicine and you keep taking dose, dose, dose. 
that will help the transference. Still, you might have still a sense of overheated, certain sexual energy often um, works by building up a sort of heat and excitement which creates a certain tension. And then there's a wish to release the tension, which is through sexual activity to release the tension. So it can be like that. Uh, And then, so with this you just do energy work and sweep the whole body so that releases the tension in a more kind of smooth and satisfactory way. Then you can sweep your your awareness from heated places in your body, you know, over your back or down your legs, your feet, your hands, set radiated out in all directions. So this qigong and things like that, meditations like that, can be very helpful also. Further, with with the lust or sex, well, sexuality is often an emotional flavoring in it. The wish to be uh, warm, to be to be met emotionally, to be have pleasure. Is so another aspect of it that comes in with that. And then with this, you it's important to generate qualities of. Brahma-vihara, someone feels emotionally warm and has that ready and it can, you know, as, as a ready resource, once energies go out through that, then it, um, again, one gets the, the sense of the emotional warming effect and the uh, skillful relationships which give us a sense of emotional happiness and ease. So, this is the way that we can work in work or practice in the um, relational realm. Yeah. And beauty of Brahmavihara is you can you can keep it going all day long, which is difficult to do with sex. You know, like all day long is a bit much for most people. <laughs> but Brahmavihara, you can keep it going all day long, near and far. You know doesn't really matter what they look like, and, and so on. So it's, it helps to establish a, a warm, unrestricted domain. And part of the quality of what sexuality often does is it start, it creates a certain boundary. You know, there's the other person, and I'm in here, and it's really he or she. Or, so there's a sort of boundary there. We want to get past that boundary. But if you practice Mahavihara, you... you dissolve the boundary in a more um, comfortable, mutual way. These are things I would recommend developing. If it, it's still a difficulty, well, it's always going to be a difficulty for, you know, as long as one, you know, to a degree, depending on one's age, the body's there, it's supposed to be doing that, you know, to breed and, and, and find partners. So certainly the, the more that one can not pay more attention to, to uh, images or media or that, that stimulate interest in that, then again, the less you, you pick away at it, the less it gets, often it gets aroused. And really the problem with arousal is it can arise within seconds and take quite a while for it to, to cool down. So to care for oneself is recommended to be restrained in terms of what one gives attention to. Yeah. And this is something because we see that the, the media, the public domain is, is highly saturated with sexual imagery, innuendos, and of all kinds, either obvious or subtle, you know, appealing to the erotic instinct on a rational level. It's rather like sugar; it's in practically everything. It's got some tint of that in it, quality in it. If you if you're aware of that, as I am, because practicing celibacy, then you're really aware of 
much more, perhaps more aware of the beginnings of those of those signals. So, so it's good to for one's own welfare to pay attention or to divert attention. The questions here. Currently, in the currently. In the Western Vipassana community, there is an emphasis on social justice and on creating more equitable and inclusive Sangha. Do you have any advice on how to formulate that work to be most closely aligned with the Buddha's teachings? Just one reference point. Buddha's teacher doesn't generally talk about equality. Or, you know, that's not a, a reference. Um, he talks about respect, generosity, uh, care and attention to others, to others as myself. But it never talks about equality. This notion, this idea is somewhat later um, derived um, way of way of uh, uh, value it's probably 18th century something like that and it's never been achieved yet so we I think, though it sounds good, and perhaps what it represents, I feel very happy about, but uh, it is a, it's a notion. What we can experience in our hearts is acceptance, patience, uh, respect, uh, um, to others as myself, sounds kind of equal. Yeah. But if you, so that's kind of what we do. We see others with that regard. Buddha once famously said, "How do you relate to others? Patience, non-abuse, kindness, and sympathy." In in relation to others like this, you guard yourself. Regard yourself. It's interesting. Guard yourself. Impatience, superiority. Uh, dismissiveness and so forth. So, in looking after others in this way, you look after yourself. So that that's definitely the Buddhist perspective. And to relate with respect uh, is is essential. Um, I think the problem with equality can be that it's something sort of measured. Um, in terms of who, who who gets what, who got the best deal, as it were, who got more fame or more renown or things of this nature, and this this um, has never been achieved. So even in countries like France, of course, one of their battle cries, America, they're very unequal societies. It's not condemning because they're not the only ones. <laughs> huge inequalities, even when it, when it's presented as something, um, you know, laudable and desirable, it doesn't happen. Because maybe instead of who gets who get who's getting what, in terms of you know how much you're getting, then that can be measured externally. But more significant is to measure internally, do we respect, do we look out for each other, do we care for each other. Then we automatically moderate and say, I want to share. Example in, and also to express one's uh, needs, if you like, or what, what one lacks. 
in monastic sangha is hierarchical and this is more the Asian culture is more that way socially structured in that way even the lay world I don't know that much but I am certainly from being in Thailand it's strong it's hierarchical and the lay people are hierarchical and so even like a you know say a a university professors up the ladder from a taxi driver. So in that the case with a male or female, so a female university lecturer will be up the ladder from a male taxi driver. So there's a certain social echelons and it's quite quite a very refined, intricate web. The same thing in India. You have to kind of explain which which caste, clan, family, subcaste you belong to. Okay. And then the things with that, then people, okay, right, this means certain things. What it, generally what it means is that the person up is supposed to look after the person who's, who's, who's lesser, you could say. He's up the ladder, looks after the person who's down the ladder. So they'll pay the check for the meal. <laughs> you know, they'll look, they have to bestow gifts upon them. Uh, and then the person below shows respect. Uh, and then the person above offers, say, um, you know, uh, material things and, uh, and other qualities too, other experiences too. Monastic sangha are very similar, you know, whereby the, the more senior is uh, to look after the more junior. And the junior pay, shows respect and the senior offers, if they've got more requisites given to them, they, they have to sh- share it out and they offer teachings and advice and guidance and support and, and recommendations. So, examples of my own practice, I remember visiting, a, when I was on Tudong in Thailand, going to a monastery up in the north, in Port Ben, with quite a strong teacher. We stayed a few days with him, and I was with another monk, and then we had to get try to get down to Ubon, which was several hundred kilometres away. And so it had been quite a long walk. And then I think the other monk, who, who knew how things worked, he went to see Mumpur Ben and said, "You know, we, uh, we we need to get to Ubon in a couple of days' time." Just left it like that. And next day, a ticket. Here's a ticket. <laughs> It's a bus ticket, come, comes up. So, it's things like that. You don't say, gimme, gimme, gimme. You just say, this is what I need. And so it gives the person, if they have it, they get a chance to offer it. If they don't have it, they're not embarrassed. You just say what you need. And the person, generally this means a person who's got more will look, is supposed to look around and see how they can provide that. That's their kind of, they would feel awkward, guilty, embarrassed if they couldn't. So that's the way that works. So it sort of tends to leveling. And of course, you know, people are not always as kind and, and agreeable and supportive as, as people with refined awareness. So it doesn't always work out. But, but I would suggest in the Dhamma community that is it, that's important. That feature can be achieved. So you get people who are senior teachers who get more money, if you like, or a claim, then they should ideally share it out amongst their uh, junior people or new teachers. And that would be helpful. Or bring them on. Say, look, I'd like you to come and join me on this and get some experience. Or you can go and stay with her. She's good. You know, look out for them. That sense of looking out for each other would certainly be very helpful within their own community. In terms of addressing this society at large, well, you know, you know. <laughs> um, the more one can walk the talk, do it, live it, and uh, uh, and understand how it works, then if you are in the personal community, depending if you have a particular position or where you, you, you have an authority to teach or address, then you, you can give the teachings of this nature, respect, uh, sharing, generosity, uh, to others, as myself, practice it, teach it, encourage it. People will learn to level. 
Not you can't go around saying you, 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 you up, you down. This, this is, this is, this is, you know, not correct. But when you point out the advantages of, of practicing like that, then people have to moderate themselves. As we can see, even when we have laws and, and so on, and constitution about equality and sharing, you still get it massively unequal because people in their hearts don't do it. <laughs> you can't really legislate. Well, you can, but eventually the ultimate authority is in one's own heart. And if one begins to see that as for one's own welfare and happiness, that it's lovely to be able to share and show respect and, and uh, then also um, you know if one is a senior the theme is if you if you made a mistake then junior person has the right should address it to you so it's not just your power thing you try to lessen the power you know saying please let me know this is how we support each other I'd be cautious about campaigns, that's all. One can turn into righteousness, which tends to, even if one's one's sense is just, it tends to people then to to harden up, gets too righteous, people tend to stiffen up and not, not receive it, not do the work. Seen images of monks in Myanmar leading marches against the Muslims in Rohingya. My faith in the Dhamma is shaken. What is the wisest point of view about this situation? I think the faith in the Dhamma is something you, you should give attention to objects and situations where it's aroused and keep your attention focus where your faith in Dhamma is aroused. In people who practice it, who are exemplary, who give you that. That's where you place your faith in Dhamma. Where it actually is. <laughs> and in beings and actions where that's inspired. You can't externalize that. That is, yes, you know, she doing this gives me inspiration. I have faith when she's like this and doing that and acting like that, my faith is aroused. Of course, if she's doing something else, my faith isn't aroused. <laughs> you know, so it's very much and and um, so on. So, just because someone's a monk doesn't mean they're necessarily uh, worthy of your faith by itself. I mean, you can you know, worthy of checking it out because if they're wearing robes then you should have a sense in which there's a certain you know criterion that they're, they're observing which is renunciation morality and so on that's worthy of respect but maybe they're not <laughs> or maybe you know they are but it doesn't really reach you and so what so now it is this issue if you like Buddhist monks in Myanmar get leading marches against the Rohingyas. Well, they're probably campaigning for social justice. <laughs> you know, in their own sense, they, I, I don't know all the issues involved and I, I'm not condoning violent actions by any means. But just, you should also bear in mind that, um, Really, throughout its history, the monastic sangha has been acculturated, that is bonded to societies uh, supported or not supported by the state, and so forth. So, become acculturated. You see what I mean? You know, like a feature of the culture and an iconic of the culture, and in many respects, almost um, one of the images of the culture. We're Buddhist culture, we have Buddhist monks, you know. So that helps us to remember who we are. 
and Burma particularly because they nearly lost the whole thing with British invasion. So that helped them to say, we are, we are Burmese, we are Buddhists. Yeah, that's what we are. So that the monk becomes a, almost a symbol of, this is, we are really, you know, this is our place. Which is understandable, but not what the Buddha intended. But these all get mixed together, these various sort of, uh, ways in which monks or people are could become images of something. Now, with the Rohingyas, you know, there's certainly it's a long-standing issue because, um, well, if you look religions all together, goodness me, the Muslim wiped out the Buddhists in North India in the 11th, 12th, 12th centuries, slaughtered the monks, you know, uh, and the Christians slaughtered everybody, including each other. <laughs> Burnt people alive. <laughs> so, and, and, uh, and so on. <laughs> but it, I don't know, I don't think they're necessarily following the tenets of the religion, though you, you can twist it. <laughs> you know, we're, we're fighting off the bad guys, and that's generally the, the case. Um, so with the Rohingya people they were now we think we consider the Myanmar Burma this nice little country with a border around it well that that's really pretty recent you had that area territory it was just there were river valleys with people there were hill, hill state people it was just a mosaic of people with no clear boundaries the boundaries kept shifting depending on how much central authority could control, which often wasn't very much. They they had the valleys and the cities and the hill people just did what they wanted. No clear boundaries. People you know, moved around all over the place uh, and the central authority had different degrees of control. Now the Rohingyas you know, were over in the west side and more associated with what's now Bangladesh. And then there's Again, fiendish British <laughs> started div- making maps, <laughs> dividing people up. So, okay, we'll stick these people in Burma, you know. Uh, and they're saying they did the same thing in Sri Lanka. They, they, they put a lot of Tamil people into Sri Lanka. So, and then they favoured them. They gave them special privileges partly because they seem to be more malleable than the stubborn Buddhists. Unfortunately, it's created a kind of resentment lashback. And this is how it goes. So I guess in Sri Lanka too, the, the Buddhist monks are um, you know, campaigning against Muslims, taking over their country. You know, if they take over our country, we'll lose our, we'll lose our Dhamma. You know, you know they're, Muslims are growing at a fast rate, they got powered by Saudi Arabia and all these very rich countries, they're going to swamp us and take over. You know, we only got this little bit of territory for our, our Dhamma, which we've held on to for, you know, throughout all these centuries, we've got to protect it. You know? These sorts of things tot up, and then this is not really a Dhamma issue, this is a cultural issue, this is a, a historical issue and it's not really about Dhamma, certainly not. So it's a source of compassion and concern but it's, um, you know, the people there are not acting in accordance with Dhamma, for sure. So you can't place, you can place your compassion or concern or disappointment but it's not a place where your faith is going to be aroused. In such things. So it's not always the case you see that all monks even meditate. You know, it's because it's a cultural thing, so some go forth, sometimes just because, well, originally because the families couldn't support that many kids, so they put them in a monastery. Um, not necessarily, you know, 
training for Nibbana. So, move on. Suggestions to improving mindfulness of thoughts, thinking, and by extension, mindfulness of speaking and listening. touched briefly this morning what's the difference between reflection and contemplation another question here should we be guiding our own solitary meditation sometimes with internal instructions in our own voice well yeah if your voice carries supportive Tones, the encouragement, um, and uh, then one can use it. The tone of voice is helpful. Getting the tone correct. Because you start giving yourself dumber talks, you probably laugh or hopefully. (laughs) 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 Who do you think you are? But uh, it can be helpful because then it's a sense of uh, here I'm speaking from my place of of truth rather than this kind of nagging, furious mind. It's my my voice can carry qualities of this, and to hear it addressing you in that way can be a change from hearing it say other things about you that are not so so uh, comforting. Voice tone helps. And so when one is mindful of, of thinking and speaking, it's good to practice mindfulness around picking up the tone, the heart tone, <coughs> and the energy of it. Um, the actual content is secondary, although it can be significant. <coughs> Most useful thing is to contemplate the, the energy of it. It's running very fast, so there's no pausing. Uh, it doesn't allow room for what I call reflection, which is you both say something and listen. Listen deeply. Listen deeply to the meaning, the tone, what, what it's doing to you. Now, if you cultivate like that when you think or speak, you both speak or think and listening, you know, you're not pouring over every word, but getting a feeling, getting a sense of the general tonality of of that. So you open up the listening faculty as you speak and as you think. This will almost certainly encourage you to slow down a little in order to listen. But you're not saying, slow down, slow down, slow down. (laughs) Which doesn't cause you to slow down. (laughs) But by listening, you tend to slow down and pick up, hey, what's really happening here? When I listen to this, it seems that I'm quite bubbly or joyful or agitated or anxious or irritated or sad. Then that's what you can address. As we've had some the interview process, <coughs> and I was trying to encourage that in his uh, relational work um, to be able to just say a little something with attention on what's happening in my heart, in my body, in my embodied sense, as I say these words. So speaking the feeling, speaking from the feeling, speaking from the heart sense, speaking from what I call the felt sense, which is speaking from that. That's That's a good exercise. So that's a specific, you know, almost a formal discipline which you can't operate on all the time but you can set it up to 
speak straight from the felt sense and, and you're cultivating that it's very helpful to have a skilled listener who goes through what they're experiencing and so i encouraging to set up in the relational process and in some ways trying to practice myself in interviews So you're you're mindful of the heart sense within the thought and the words and the speech. Then it it really is very helpful. Very helpful. Because it allows things to be said that would not otherwise be said and think some things need to be said in order to be fully felt. So when the words are connected to, to the heart sense, and the heart sense is encouraged, then you hear, and, oh, it's that. And as, you, as you listen, you can feel something happen. That, that's the skill of specialized uh, trained uh, speaking in, in that relational sense. Why does why do things need to be said? As I said, because when it's said, your voice catches it and you hear it, and it gives a chance for that which has been felt and not been able to be expressed, felt censored. Editing, foolish, waste of time, don't want to bother anybody with this, shouldn't feel this way, change me to something else, all those kind of strategies are removed. And so it gives a chance to get it out. Why are we getting out? Not because we're trying to just proliferate or spill on somebody else for its own, for its own sake, but then we hear it, hear it and... Uh, and in the hearing of that, in an open hearing, the heart can begin to respond. Yeah. In the open hearing, the heart begins to respond to what it, what it felt, but never really was fully able to get out uh, and open into open awareness. Once it's in that state, the heart will respond. It will, it will experience something that needs to be experienced as a response. And in that responsive aspect, there's a sense of things can be completed, released, moved on. This is a skill. Um, As we know, our thinking minds can chatter away a lot. And one of the reasons why they're chattering away is because we haven't said what's important. So they're they're kind of compensating for it. (laughs) There's some wanting to say something, wanting to say something, wanting to be heard, but we haven't actually said what's really important. So, this is why it goes on so much. You haven't actually said what's important. There's still the feeling of needing to say, but you've got to listen in to get to what needs to be said. And sometimes you you didn't, it's not necessarily something you've deliberately shoved down, but something's been most historically closed you know, what social pressure does. Certain things are not allowed to be presented to others. Or, so then you don't present it to yourself anymore. And shame and so on. And some experiences, traumatic experiences, get so embedded in the body that they have no voice.
no voice, they stay there. <clears throat> if you don't speak it, you become it. You, know, you keep forming yourself unconsciously around that unresolved experience, unresolved feeling. You keep forming yourself around that, just like a pearl growing in an oyster, a black pearl, a dark pearl, around what hasn't been able to be expressed. You keep forming layers and layers and layers and layers and layers. And it's a reflex that does that. And, it, but, and so we can kind of sometimes feel well we'll just forget about it it's not that important yeah get over it it's, it's, that was ten years ago forget about it it's not that important you can do that for a while <laughs> but you don't get over things you either clear them or you can them. They've been cleared, they've been canned. And some things we don't even realize they've been canned. So embedded. So, certainly with meditation and embodiment work, some of these phenomena start moving. They start moving, and they don't always move using words. They start move using energies, constrictions, openings, surges, flutters, uncertainties. Um, disorientation they start moving and these are the experiences we have you feel a, a throat tighten up or feeling overheated or suddenly feeling frozen or we see other people around seeming like they don't like us you know and stuff starts happening um, and so you know then the felt sense is it, it's not it's true, it's authentic, but it's not true. Because it's actually what's being felt, however irrational, however, you know, irrelevant it is to the actual situation, it's actually, that's what's happening. And so, you know, we come to the felt sense, feeling trapped, feeling threatened, feeling compressed, feeling shut. Nobody around's doing that. Get over it. It's ridiculous. Well, that's what, that's what the experience is. Yeah. Um, so these, there's a, so we we felt sense. You're not taking it literally. Uh, this is a, the truth on this level. It's the truth on the psychic level. It hasn't. So you want to always say fine. You know, if that starts happening, well, let's just say feels like this. Feels like this, and so you're offering it a voice. You offer it a voice because you offer it listening. This is a particular skill. Someone asked about that, so I've kind of gone off the topic a little bit because somebody asked about the, the practice in, in this, what I call the relational work. And somebody also asked about, you know, in, when they're off retreat, how they can practice with their partner. Well, this is a possibility. But you have to really, you know, uh, be quite disciplined and drop the personalities it's not occurring at that level it's not occurring at that level this could be the difficult thing about that relationship because naturally you know we have a strong personal bond or connection and so that's who we see each other as but this is operating at another level transpersonal or pre-personal what I'm talking about is particular experiences, emotions <clears throat> and so forth occur and the personality is the structure that tries to deal with it <clears throat> or sits on top of it it's not always suppressing it but the personality is the, is the shop window it's not false it's, it's a genuine form everybody has it <clears throat> it's not necessarily a putting on an act, it's something that grows at the interface with the social world. How we, our language form, how we express, how we look, how we make eye contact and so forth, our personality and that 
what works so we can communicate with others so there's that level but a lot of experience is is not of that nature Heart experience is not personal. Sadness and tragedy and violation are not personal. They're transpersonal. They occur to many beings. And they, the personality tends to as well try and deal with that. So but when we, we meditate, we're dropping through the personality into these transpersonal domains where we're not quite ourselves. And that can be, itself can be quite disorienting, because, you know, I'm not who I think I am. But the discipline of this kind of process work is, you don't take it to the personal realm. You don't take it to a personal level. You don't see, oh, she's this, or he's got that problem, or what you need to do is this. That's personal. Transpersonal is just, I'm experiencing sense of you know, withdrawal, agitation, flusteredness, and it's just then then the, the listener flustered. I don't know, don't have to know, just that what she said. And flustered and you don't try and do anything about it. You're just there to resonate, to let that voice do its speaking and to encourage it to do its speaking. At the same time you don't say come on, get it out. <laughs> You're just using the listening sense and trust the other person's heart will hear that and feel that listening sense and feel encouraged. But if you try pulling it out, then they go to the personal level and feel awkward. So you've got to be very disciplined about that. Because naturally, personally we are fond of each other, care for each other, I hope. (laughs) And certainly if you relate that must be there. You don't want them to experience suffering and difficult feelings. But they do. You don't want them to. Well, you've just got to be disciplined about it and just look, hold back. Let him say, let him feel what he feels. And you feel yourself feeling concerned and worried and hope she gets better. Fine, that's what you're feeling. Then you're with that. And you just keep grounding in that, listening to all of that. And that will help. But it's not supposed to be made of steel. That just letting oneself be affected, feeling that. And if you're feeling that, the qualities of your own heart, as it feels that, will be supportive to the other person. You don't get lost in it. So it's a very interesting uh, process to, to cultivate. But if you have a personal relationship, then you kind of say, okay, for this next hour we put that to one side, it's just two humans and two voices expressing the human condition. And you don't talk about it flippantly, you don't take it from the person and say, well, Mary, you're really quite a mess, aren't you? That's, that's, that's taking it out of context, you know. Just leave it there, and then when it's finished, it's closed, respectful closure, and then see what we need to do. And then we can go back to being, you know, personal again, and that, that's respectful and helpful. So, there's a digression because that was another question, but to return to uh, mindfulness of thinking and speaking, I think I've suggested listening, uh, even using a deliberate exercise like uh, saying saying a simple phrase and getting used to hearing yourself say something and listen to it at the same time. (laughs) It's amazing. Actually listen to what you say. (laughs) Oh, then just... So you train yourself with fairly neutral expressions. You know, today is Thursday. Today is Thursday. You can hear the voice. Pause. Today is Thursday. Today becomes the next word is pause. Next word, Thursday. 
So you get used to that. Right? Bring yourself like that. And then with... Um, so that, that's just a contemplate thought process. Now with reflection... Reflection, I've used the terms perhaps a little bit casually. Reflection would generally mean a specific topic, subject for reflection or recollection. The whole process of reflection is just this sense of vitaka vichara. If one says something or thinks something, one then listens, gets the feeling of it. So that's, that's the general standard. Recollection, you have a specific topic. Recollection of death, recollection of Buddha, recollection of loving kindness. You bring up a particular topic, put it there in your mind. How is that? It's reflecting. What, what's the heart tone? What, how does that affect you? Contemplation is uh, less verbal. Contemplation is one way of describing vipassana practice on looking equanimity. So it's less verbal, it's at a quieter level, and you're contemplating the state of mind as it is. There's a sense of spaciousness, stepping back, spaciousness is what it is, and noticing any you know, energies and reverberations that occur either within it or as a response to it, you contemplate. I'll just deal with this last series. Access and sustain a strong sense of spiritual urgency. The vitality of it fades, so engaging, meeting right responsibilities to family and society. Can you say a little more about living from your centre? I have trouble internally clarifying. Sounds like core values more intuitive personal how do we touch into our center mm. retreat I'm more emotionally sensitive as well as strongly motivated by dhamma talks makes me feel this work is important what do you recommend to help maintain this sense post-retreat. So a sense of urgency, a sense of focus uh, that you don't cool off, if you like, or go stagnant. Um, And I think the person expresses some concern about engaging in their responsibilities. Does this mean we go off, off, you know, away from our centrality, away from our, our, our place of deep meaning? Yeah. So, as I said, the days and nights are relentlessly passing. It's something to recollect every day, at least once or twice a day. How well am I spending my time? Responsibilities and duties, you recognize, well, they will never end. You end before they do, in some respects. You could very well end before they do, so... Let's get the, the perspective right and use one's responsibilities, try to infuse them with a sense of dhamma. So, why, what am I doing? I'm doing something so that I can provide material support for my children or... Fair enough, that's a decent thing to do. Um, I'm doing this so that, uh, you know, I, I can retire in the future and well, that's not a bad idea. Um, so you get some sense of how do what you do respond to your core meanings, and do I work with a sense of integrity? Do I work with a sense of my responsibilities carrying through with patience? Do I carry them through with mindfulness? So you try to make your responsibilities a dharma practice, and you look for the meanings within those. This way helps you to come from your center in what you do.
and situations vary, but one one can find oneself with duties, responsibilities, which are tedious and seemingly you know, not very enthralling, not very inspiring. And then so you may come to your core value of I can practice patience and equanimity. So even something like that, you try to see if you can either don't do it at all, if you're going to do it, then see what dumb you can get out of it. <laughs> so everything connected to your center in this way. Center is where your values are. If it's um, gain, it's a good idea to have pausing when you return to your body center. You're getting speedy, agitated, uh, frantic, returning to your bodily center, so the sense of cooling nervous energies periodically, or just this switching, changing gear, refresh, one minute, ten seconds, five minutes, take, unplug, so that you're not running automatic helter-skelter. So, here I am, I'm here. Okay, there's some cooking to be done, or right, right now I'm here. How do I move into this? Rather than getting dragged by the ob- by the goal or the object. So this I would also recommend as a dumber practice. been listening to myself speak and this voice in my heart is saying why don't you be quiet <laughs>